great to see you. While the guys are finishing up the offering, let me just kind of jump into some things. I want to I want to make you aware of something. Uh, this this season, we have just uh, we gathered, we prayed, we have uh, really feel like we feel like his direction that the Lord has given us for this uh, Christmas season, and it's going to be an incredible year. And it's not. It's not just something that you come on Sunday and you're going to say, oh, yeah, we're talking about the promise. So if you go to Central's webpage, no, you don't have to go right now, centralrr.com, you're going to find the logo of the promise right there on our uh, screen. You can click on that. It's going to take you to our Advent page. Uh, Chris uh, Chalman has done an incredible job of putting together the, uh, along with Brett, just the resources that you have on that page. You're going to find that there's a place for daily devotionals for you that will coincide with the messages. There's a weekly family devotionals. There's craft opportunities for you to do as a family. And then there's a, a Spotify music list that you can go on and listen to that uh, songs we've picked out about the season going with what we're doing here. And you're able to go on there. So, Go check it out. It is it is good. If you do not connect and you do not get some anticipation and excitement about this season, man, we've done everything we can to set the table. And that's kind of what today is. You know, um, you go and, and uh, you know, somebody may be cooking up and, and uh, there's different courses, but you've got to start by setting the table, right? You've got to get it ready. And uh, today, a little bit, I want to take the opportunity to set the table. As Alan has said, Advent means coming. It's an anticipation, especially of someone that is about to come. And we can say, well, Jesus has already come. Yes, he has come. But there's something about the buildup to experience him more. I love this about the scriptures, that it's not like a one dose and you get to know everything. It's a progressive knowing of him. And we just really pray that this year there's an anticipation that increases in you. Many of you can remember as a child just the anticipation of Christmas Day and, and all that's happening. We want to pray that that anticipation happens in your life. However, reality sets in. And there's two terms that I use quite often that I just uh, kind of introduce to you again. One is called the law of diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns mean the longer you do something, the less you experience it fully. Uh, let's take a roller coaster. You're, you, uh, you remember taking a look at that roller coaster and the drop and the first time you're on it, there's this incredible anticipation of what is about to take place, especially when you come over what is probably the last drop and your uh, stomach is up in your throat. I mean, all that kind of stuff. Just the anticipation was beyond what you can ever imagine. You do it again and again and again. Pretty soon, there's a law of diminishing returns. And it's, it's, a, it's a rule of life. The longer you do something, the less you truly experience it. The, there's another term that I use called visual lethargy. Visual lethargy is the longer, the, the more you see something, the, the less you see it. In other words, there's a billboard, and you re- recognize it the first time, and you're thinking, man, that is cool. Look at that billboard. Then you come by it again, you drive by it again, you drive by it again, and somebody will say, hey, have you seen that billboard? Oh, man, you don't even notice it anymore. I had a friend that uh, used to work in Colorado Springs. From his office, he could literally see Pikes Peak. And I was talking to him on the phone one day, and I said, man, that must be cool to see Pikes Peak every day. And he said, you know, Mark, I don't even notice it anymore. You know, visual lethargy, all, all of us have it. We have the law of diminishing returns in our life. 
and we have visual lethargy. And let's be honest, a lot of times it happens with Christmas about the coming of Christ. It's, uh, you know, songs start now, October, July, you get Christmas uh, movies. And, uh, and it's just, we get this lethargy. We get this uh, numbness that comes, oh, here comes Christmas again. Here comes Christmas again. And we miss, truly, you hate to say it uh, in a billboard kind of way, but we truly miss the reason that this season is all about, and we miss Jesus. So our prayer as a staff has been, as we come to unpack this this season, is that God will literally give us like the first time experience of knowing Jesus. And we want to try to build up your anticipation. The first candle that is lit on Advent is the hope candle. It has to do with the prophecy that Jesus was going to come. And that's where I want to walk with you a little bit. I'm going to be sharing, reading a lot of scripture uh, to you today. I'm going to give you the address. Most of them will be on the screen. And you uh, are not going to be able to to find them all and keep up with it. I, I wish I could say you do. You Bible drillers, Brent. We'll see what the Iwana kids got going for them, uh, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna be showing this. So um, we're gonna we're gonna begin. And 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 you know, I found something. I thought this was great. I, it, there's a book called The World's Worst Predictions. The World's Worst Predictions. And so here are some of the predictions that were in this book. King George II said in 1773. He said the American colonies have too little a stomach for revolution. Famous last words, right? Uh, an official of the White Star Line, he was talking about their, their newly built flagship, the Titanic, launched in 1912. He declared, this ship cannot sink. A prediction that uh, did not uh, pan out. In 1939... The New York Times said that there's a problem with TV in that the people have to be glued to it all the time, and the average American won't have time to watch it. One more. An English astronomy professor in the early 19th century said that air travel at high speed would be impossible because passengers would suffocate. These are predictions, true predictions that were made somewhere along the line. And I remember uh, Roger Bannister, the first guy that broke the four-minute mile in running. It was said by, by everybody, there's no way humanly possible that a man can outrun the four-minute mile. And he was the first one that did it. See, these predictions have been made, and uh, they've not been lived up to. God made bold predictions in his word. And did they, were they really fulfilled in Christ? It says in Galatians chapter 4, it's 4-4 four, four and following there, it says that in the fullness of time, Jesus came. That, that fullness of time means not the completion of time. It means at the perfect time, He came. And why did He come? He came for the redemption of mankind. He came to restore relationship with us that now we can come back to call Him Father. And we're going to look at this through the scriptures. We're just going to kind of walk the timeline a little bit so you can get it. Let's go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Right from the very beginning, God created out of nothing. He created, and he created the heavens and the earth. He created the moon and the stars. He created 
land and water. He created animal kind. And then he created man and woman and he put them in the garden. And we know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. We know that the Lord had one thing for them is that they were not to eat of a particular tree of, of, of the fruit of that tree because once they, they did it, uh, death would enter. Now, I don't understand the full capacity of this. I know theology. I know the scriptures. Why the, the serpent uh, was God allowed that situation, we will have to ask him one day. But the serpent is there in the garden. And you remember that the serpent deceived Eve. Eve ate of the tree. She gave to Adam. He ate of the tree. We're not going to go into all the ramifications uh, right now. But I can tell you that once that happened, their disobedience, evil took over. Death came. Hatred came. Murder came. Death entered into the picture at that point. Not only death of the physical body, but the death of the separation that existed between God and his creation. And you and I have walked that out ever since. And this is what took place. However, there was a conversation that took place in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, this is how this conversation went a little bit between God and the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says this, I will put enmity, a separation, an animosity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, notice it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, He's going to crush your head. You will, you will have uh, your moment of injure of him, him, but he will crush your head. Well, who is he referring to? He's referring to the one who is going to come, the one who is ultimately going to be the deliverer, the one who is ultimately going to come and crush the enemy's head. And we knew that that was going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Right there in Genesis 3, God tells us he has a plan for what is taking place. The coming is going to happen, and it's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. But let's go on a little bit. We know that a few chapters later that Noah enters the picture. You remember Noah, Noah and the ark. And what happens is, is that the world has uh, evil, is at full-blown rain, and uh, God allows the earth to be destroyed. He causes the earth to be destroyed. And what happens is the floodwaters come from an out with an in. It's just total devastation. The only one that survives is Noah and his family. He has three sons, you may remember. And one of those sons, his name is Shem, not one of the three stooges, but Shem. And Shem, out of his line, it's going to continue because this is what the scripture says. Genesis 9, 26 and 27. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. What God is doing there is he's saying that this deliverer who is going to come from the, the woman who is going to come is going to come from the line of Shem. See, it's going from mankind a little bit uh, in a little bit more. So it's going to come from the line of Shem. Well, what happens from there? There's a guy that enters the scene by the name of Abraham. Uh, Abraham. Last week, Jared did a great job of unpacking the promise that was made to Abraham. And through Abraham, God says, 
we're going to continue, and this is going to come through him. This is what it says in Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Everybody's going to be blessed through this one that is going to come from Abraham. So we have mankind, Adam and Eve. Out of them is going to come the one who is going to crush and set right everything. That is also going to come through the line of Shem. It's going to come through the family of Abraham, the father of our faith. And where do we go from there? Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons' name was Judah. And the scripture says that out of the line of Judah is one that's going to come. This is what it says in Genesis 49.10. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. In other words, out of all of these sons, of we've got Abraham. It's going to come through Abraham. Abraham has these, um, these, uh, these great-grandsons. Out of these great-grandsons, the one Judah is going to be the one that the line is going to come from, the one who is going to crush the head of the enemy, going to crush the serpent's head, is the one who is going to set right everything that has been done in evil. But what happens from there? There is a guy by the name of Jesse. Jesse is out of the line of Judah. And this is what it says. Isaiah the prophet says this in Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. It says that one is going to come from the stump, of Jesse, from the, from the root of Jesse, it's going to come from. So what's happening is evil entered in the garden that had to be dealt with. In other words, if it was not dealt with, we had no hope. We had no hope. So it, out of the, out of the seed of Eve, this is going to come. It's going to come through the line of Shem. It's going to come through Abraham. It's going to come through, uh, Judah. And it's going to come through the household of Jesse. Well, we remember the story of Jesse. Let me fill you in a little bit. Is that Jesse had eight sons. And Samuel the prophet went because Saul had been king and Saul had disappointed God. Disobedience. He was put aside. So the new king is going to come. Samuel comes to Jesse. And he says, let me see your boys. He parades seven of them by them. Very fit guys. But Samuel said, these are not them. Do you not have another son? He said, I've got one more son. He's the runt of the litter. He's out watching the sheep in the field. Samuel says, we're not going to sit down until you bring him here. So what happens is, is they go out and they get David. They wait until he comes. And as soon as he comes in, probably a young teenager, Samuel said, this is God's anointed. And he anoints him at that point. And so David is going to become king. So out of the line of David is where this ultimate deliverer is going to come from. Because it says in Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch 
to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So out of David now as king, the Lord makes a promise that one of yours will always be on the throne. But there is one who's coming that is going to fulfill all righteousness. And who is that? It's the Messiah, the one they were waiting for. It's going to ultimately be Jesus. So you're with me right from the very beginning. Evil entered. Death entered. Uh, we still see the effects of it daily, don't we? You pick up the paper. You see how sin rules so much. But in the fullness of time, we know that this is going to be worked out. So it happens as it goes on. God is saying this is going to happen. Now, here's our problem. We take the scriptures and we read it as though it's all current. I mean, it all happened at the same time. The prophet Isaiah was 600 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. And then you take it back to the very beginning. So it's not like, oh, they sat down and and started comparing notes and writing this. No, God is making this bold prophetic prediction that's going to come about eventually through the deliverer. But after David, uh, the prophets come along. And we start seeing the prophets, and the prophets are there. And we start seeing that uh, a guy by the name of Micah, Micah makes a uh, a prediction and a bold one that says that the deliverer is going to come from a little town called Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 is is where that is found. And and, and you may think, well, that's just kind of random. It's not random. Because you remember when Matthew comes along, that there was three guys that came in the Magi. I'm not going to talk much about the Magi because Alan is going to deal with this in a few weeks. But out of the wise men, the Magi, they came and they were following the star and they said, where's the king? And Herod's all up in a uh, fuss on what this is supposed to do. He, do. he brings in his uh, religious leaders and they say, when is this supposed to happen? They went to the scriptures and they came back and they knew the scriptures taught that he would be born in Bethlehem. So it's not like, oh, this wasn't known. Micah 5, 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Not only the place, but the time he was going to come. It says in Daniel, if you read Daniel, some of it's kind of uh, uh, in, a term, in a prophetic way that we don't quite understand quite so much. But in Daniel, uh, it says in Daniel uh, 9.26 that the one who is to come will be born before Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. And we know that Jesus came. And he came in that first century in the fullness of time and that he is going to live and he's going to be put to death on a cross around, let's say, 30, uh, 35, 33 to the end of the maybe 40 as we figure out time. 40 A.D. uh, is what we're looking at. Jerusalem fell at 70. So they knew the place. They knew the time he was going to this was going to happen. And we're going to get into Isaiah in just a second, how it even more specific. But what happened is, is these prophets began to speak and they began to point signposts that brought hope that the deliverer is going to come. But then all of a sudden Malachi comes around, which is the last book in the Old Testament. And Malachi talks about this, but he talks even more about the one who is to come beforehand, like the prophet Elijah. And we knew that that is eventually going to be John the Baptist. 
But at the end of Malachi, time does not stop, but there's a 400-year gap between the revelation of God and Malachi to before the New Testament comes around with Matthew. 400 years. Was God being silent? No. He was in the fullness of time going to work this out, but this is his revelation up to that point. It's like uh, uh, anticipate. You're desperate. You need this, and it's coming. But can you imagine? See, we, I eat breakfast, and I'm anticipating lunch already. And uh, I'm eating lunch. I anticipate dinner. I mean, this is just the way it works. And uh, can you imagine an anticipation of 400 years? 400 years before Jesus comes on the scene. But he, he came in the fullness of time. Do you see how the whole Old Testament is pointing towards that day? Because we were lost and we were fractured from our relationship with our Father. I mentioned Isaiah the prophet. And I want to read to you something out of Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 9, let me just read part of this to you because this is really cool. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 9, let me begin with verse 1 and just follow along a little bit. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And you're thinking, Mark, that does not register in my historical banks at all. But let me, let me just kind of give you a picture because this is cool. You see, uh, of course, we just got back from Israel not too long back. And I'm always reminded when you go there historically that any conquerors would come through from the north. And that place he was talking about is where they would come through. And you know when conquering armies come through, they just ravage places especially those country people up there, and they would be on their way to Jerusalem, and they would just come and ravage those countries to the north. And these are the countries he's talking about. But he's saying a day is coming when the deliverer is going to come from that north. And if you may remember, Jesus was born, we're in Bethlehem, but he was his, Mary and Joseph had lived in Nazareth, and they ended up going back to that area. That's what he's talking about. This is, this is beautiful about how God has worked all this out. Now, let me read to you what Isaiah says here, verse 2. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping army in in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. I know this is hard to understand. This is actually good news. Okay. Now, look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, sing it, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, for this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Do you understand what Isaiah is saying here? Yes, we got Handel's Messiah out of that. But what is happening is 
The people are desperate. They had tried the blood of sheep and goats just trying to be made right with their creator. And what Isaiah is saying, a time is coming. A time is coming. One more verse out of Isaiah, and then I'm going to try to make this as practical as I can. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah gives another thought here in the midst of his speaking. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. 600 years before Christ was born. Okay? Matthew knew this when he wrote the gospel there because he refers to Emmanuel. Emmanuel means this. You ready? God is with us. God is with us. I want you to hear the next few minutes. Because that Emmanuel is what all hope is built on. It says God is with us. I want to break it down a minute. First of all, it says God is with us. He didn't send a representative. He sent himself. He Jesus was not 50-50. He was 100% God, 100% man. Mark, explain that. I can't. I put total faith in it, though. If he wasn't 100% man, he couldn't 100% identify with me. But he did. But yet he was 100% God because only God could fulfill the wrath of the disobedience and the evil and the sin that was there. So God came himself. He emptied himself, as Philippians 2 says, that Christ emptied himself of all the glory of heaven to come down here and to be among us. God did not send a representative. He came himself. That's huge. You see, uh, the definition of religion is man trying to reach God. The difference, I don't, I don't call being a Christ follower a religion. I call it a relationship because God reached down to me. God is with us. But not only God is with us, but God is with us. Not he was with us. Not he will be with us. He is with us now. Some of you need to hear this today. Because some of you are going through some stuff whether it's physical or emotional or relational or financial or whatever, or just disobedience or addictive patterns or whatever it may be in your life, and you have got to know that God has not abandoned you and that he is with you now. You know what I'm saying? Because we, we want, yeah, God... God created over there, you know, however long it was ago. God created, and yeah, he, that's what he did. He, he was with us. And one day I'll go to heaven, and, and he will be with me. But I want you to know he is as much with you in your now as he was or he ever will be. He is right here. And some of you need to know that today. You need comfort. God is with us. But God is with us. He's not against us. He is for us. 
And some of you need to know this today, because you've tried to earn God's approval, haven't you? Don't we all play that game? Oh, if I can just do this, God will be approved of me. Hey, let me let you in on something, because I see it in the Scriptures. God loves you as much now as He ever will, and He will not love you any less. And He really won't love you anymore, because He totally loves you. And He is with you. He is for you. You know, all of us have... Memorize John 3.16, if you've been in the faith a long time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whoever would believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We hear that, and we've memorized it, and we can flow through it so fast. But it does not say God was so angry at us and sick of us and tired of us, and we were just so bad that he had to send Jesus. No. He says, for he loved us so much that he sent Jesus. You need to hear this today. God is with us, not against us. You need to hear that. God is with us. He's with us. All of us. He came for all of mankind, not for the super spiritual, not for the paid Christians that, you know, we talk about the calling that they have, not for them, not for the prophets in the Old Testament only or for the the apostles and Paul for sure. He is with us. He is as much in this room as anywhere else on this planet. He is with us. And here, I don't say this to scare you. I just say it because it's reality. There's nothing hidden from him. You know, we sometimes think, oh, man, if God only knew my motives. (laughs) He knows your motives. He knows what you do in the dark. He knows what you do anytime. But he is with us. We need to hear this. We need to know that He has not abandoned us. You ever felt that before? God, where are you? Things are hard. No, I am with you. I am with you. God is with us. I uh, I was reading and because, you know, I'm heading into the home here. And, and, and just hear me a minute. That law of diminishing returns and that uh, visual lethargy and apathy that comes upon our heart, it, it just happens. It, it, it didn't happen overnight. It's a slow fade. It's a slow, gradual thing. And, and uh, you know, as we were talking through this, and I, I was going over with the staff just about the objectives of this month and the series and everything, and I, and I told them, I said, you know, above all else, what I want is I want us to get Christ intoxicated. Christ intoxicated. We know what intoxicated means. Some of you know more than others. But you know what it's intoxicated, especially if it's alcohol. It's something that 
takes over and, and controls you and, and you desire it more and more because of the intoxication that it comes. But we're not just intoxicated with alcohol. It's intoxicated with adrenaline rushes from different things and intoxicated. You know, I've seen many a young man or young woman smitten with each other and there's this intoxication. You just got to be around them. You just can't. You can't uh, hide it, man. People look on your face and it's obvious you're in love and this kind of stuff. Or or there's other people that are intoxicated. I know that hunting season, man, some guys and girls, man, they get intoxicated to want to do part of that. But there's certain things that just control us. But my my prayer is, is that we would get Christ intoxicated, that we would just desire him. We would desire more of him. It's been an anticipation that, that imagine those people who were walking in that brokenness and separation from their creator, the relationship had been broken for thousands of years, and then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden Jesus comes on the scene. He comes on the scene. And uh, that's my prayer. God, we want to become intoxicated, but we become Law of Diminishing Returns. We've got this visual lethargy. How can he work through that? And I was reading in, in Hosea, um, if you've ever read Hosea, man, Hosea had a hard journey. That's all, that's all I can say. Um, Hosea was a prophet that God said, go marry a prostitute and she's gonna, she's gonna turn her back on you and then I want you to go and I want you to pay money to get her back. And, uh, golly, that's a hard story. But yet we know that when we look at it, God was making a point of his people, Israel, how they turned their back on how they prostituted themselves with other things and and um, and they follow other things. And, and all of us in this room can say, oh, man, I'm glad I don't relate to that very bit. Bull. We chase foreign gods all the time. In fact, there's a verse in there that I was just reading in, in, in Hosea chapter seven about how that they they would go after foreign gods, literally, uh, after foreign gods. I believe it's Hosea 7, 9. I guess I could read it. I got my Bible. Um, this is what it says in ESV here. It says, Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. What he is saying here is is that that mankind has chasing these foreign gods, these other little little G gods, and their strength is faded and they don't even know it. I, I believe this describes today. I really do. And, and we can say, oh, you know, I, I read the scriptures and I say, God, where's the power? Where's the power in my life? Where's the power in your bride, the church, the way it needs to be? And the Lord just says so often, your strength's been sapped because you've chased little G gods and you don't even know it. Your lack of purity is, is, is right along the lines of your lack of power. That's another sermon, but, but that, but in Hebrews, excuse me, in Hosea, uh, chapter, in Hosea chapter 10, I, I just want to read a verse to you because I think this is, this is to sum up where we are. Because I think if we're going to get beyond this apathy, it says, says this. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. And then he says this, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Plow up your fallow ground. Plow up 
You know what it's like to have that hard ground? When we had the drought, you just couldn't, I mean, the thing couldn't even hold water. It was so dry up. And that's what the prophet is saying here. It's time for you to plow up the fallow ground of your heart and see what God can do. See, that's my prayer. God, let us be Christ intoxicated, but before we get there, you've got to plow up some foul ground. We've allowed it to get hard. You know as well as I do. We've just allowed it to get hard. And here's the sad thing. It gets hard, and we really don't care. And so I'm just praying, God, would you take your plow to our hard hearts that we don't even know have gotten hard this Christmas season? And we may, may we anticipate you like no other time. I want you to pray with me if you would.